All right, hey folks, and welcome back to the 747 Club podcast, 747 Conversations. It's your host, Chris Shembra, and I'm sitting broadcasting live from my old neighborhood, the Upper West Side of New York City, with a dear friend, Erica Keswin. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Today, we are talking about one thing, and that is bringing your human to work. And Erica has a wonderful book coming out this September that we're going to get into later in this podcast. But to open us up, I want to ask you a question. Growing up in Connecticut, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? I would say that would be um, family friends that I had. I have one of good friends were twins, Amy and Melissa Greenspan. And I was very close with their parents. And, uh, you know, one of the things that is important when you hear about my background, my parents got divorced when I was 10. And my dad is actually a divorce attorney. And the research shows that children of divorced parents tend to reach out and connect with people even more outside of their nuclear family. So it was friends like these that allowed me to, you know, become important parts of their family that really shaped me growing up. And did you realize at the time that you, uh, that that was a statistic, that kids were more susceptible to reaching out or more prone to reaching out outside of the family? Did you realize that? What was the family dynamic after the split? No, I, I, I didn't realize that. It was much later as I began doing a lot of this research on connection that I had a conversation with my dad. And he said, by the way, did you know that that is often what happens with, with children of divorced parents? You developed skills early uh, to meet new people in your life. And what kind of relationships did you develop with them? Were they relationships based on curiosity and inquiry or, or service or giving? What do those relationships look like? Say it's a it was a combination. You know, if you talk to people who knew me in nursery school, in middle school, in high school, in business school, at work, would say the one word descriptor that would be a common theme is connector. Hmm. That from a very young age, I and still do, it's become a core of my business, but it, but it's also who I am as a person. I enjoy connecting people for connecting people's sake. I want to introduce you to this person because I know you'd like them or I'd know you could work with them. And so that's been something that's just always been a focus. You know, I almost can't help myself but want to connect people. One of my greatest insecurities growing up as a connector was that I knew so many diverse groups of people, I was always the last one called to the party. Why call Chris? Probably already taken care of by another group. How many times can he say no? Did you feel any of that? Or yes, and I still feel that yeah? today. I still feel that today. So there's no getting over that. You just have to learn and live with it. Yeah, I do. I think people think, oh, you always, you have so many people that you're connected to and you're so busy and you have so much going on, but sometimes it is nice to get a call from someone else saying, hey, you want to come over to my house or, you know, I'm having a dinner party versus me being the ones always facilitating those kinds of plans. Hmm. Now, um, dot connecting is the term that you so famously describe yourself as. Um, when, when did that dot uh, go into the front of connector? 
in your life? So professionally, after I got out of business school, even before business school, I started my career in management consulting. And to be a good management consultant, you not only need to understand the the content and the business issues and the industry and the culture and all the things going on within a company, but what makes people stand out in that kind of an industry is to connect the dots and see the themes and see the patterns. So that was a skill that I started to develop right after I got out of undergrad and then through through business school. And it's something now that I just think is is really important. Again, whether it's connecting people or connecting themes, one of the things that I love to do is take in tons of information, analyze it, connect all those dots, and then come back with, here's what I think we need to do about this. Is solitude where a connector works the best or does a connector thrive off the energy of people in order to connect those dots? It's got to be a combination of both. And one of the things I often say is left to our own devices, we're not connecting in this day and age with all of the technology. But when I talk about we're not connecting, it's two things. We're not connecting with ourselves, and mm. that is the solitude piece, and we are not connecting with others. And a lot of what I focus on and believe, and it, I touch on it in the book and in my talks, is that because left to our own devices, we're not connecting, we have to be intentional. We have to be disciplined. And it's hard. And it's only getting harder given the pull of technology and giving, giving the fast-paced of the world that we're in. So because I know that, and I'm not perfect at it by any means, I make sure that in my day, I find places for both. And, and I spend a lot of time, even on Sundays, looking at my week and, and really mapping out when am I going to get that time to be alone, to think. Um, there's a, a new book out by Manoush Zamarati called Bored and Brilliant. If you don't take time to just sit in that library or sit somewhere and think, there is a correlation. That's when you come up with those ideas to then be able to connect the dots. You've got to have both. And you're saying that technology has hindered our ability to be by ourselves or think for ourselves. Is that true? Yeah, 100%. People, we are much more transactional. Pre-cell phones, you get in line at Starbucks to get your latte and you're looking around or you're talking to the person in front of you or you're just being. Now you go into any place like that Every single person is on their phone, looking at their Instagram feed, banging through emails, getting through their inbox. And I do think there's a time and a place for that. But we also need time to ensure that that's not what we're doing to enable ourselves to think, to be strategic, to be creative. And to I, I do believe that if you have certain goals that you want to move forward in your life, personally or professionally, without that time to think, you will not get there. Or you'll get there more slowly than you would otherwise. Hmm. I want to dive into those concepts when we talk about the book in a little bit because you have an entire chapter on just that concept. Um, now, you're, um, to go back into your story, you're, you're a management consultant and you're working at some of the most iconic brands and you're connecting the dots and you're learning from the inside out. When, when did you realize that you were going to go off on your own and you're going to start adding in your own new brand mm -hmm. of this human connection, these concepts. That's great. So 
when I think about my path, and I, I often talk about this with, with women and, and men, as, as you move up in your career and as other things happen in your lives, you have different priorities and you need to stop and weigh what makes sense when. So I was working as an executive recruiter for Russell Reynolds, which I loved. It was an amazing career. I moved on to NYU. I was doing executive coaching. And at that time, it was a, it was a job that was much more flexible. I had three young kids. I had three kids under four, twins and then another one. So it was I needed a job that I really could structure my time more around me versus when you're in a client service business, your time is less your own. And in 2009, we decided as a family to take this family sabbatical and move to Colorado. Everybody thought we were crazy. It was so not in my DNA to do something like this. I'm a, I'm a planner and organized and I know what I'm doing for the next 10 years. But this was sort of, you know what? Life's too short. You regret the things you don't do, not the things you do. And we moved to Colorado. And I decided in that year to try to just be you know, not to get involved in a hundred different organizations, to really have time to connect with myself, nature, my kids, and figure out what this next part of my career would look like. So we moved to Colorado and it, it's funny, it's, you know, 2009, I, this, this, this shows my age a little bit, but <laughs> no. I um, had a Blackberry from from years before, which I just loved so much that I couldn't get rid of it. And I also had an iPhone, you know, which had just come out. So I'm walking around with my two phones and I was trying to figure out how can I be more present in, in my life, in my kid's life, yet I had these two phones and I was beginning to see the impact of technology, the good, but also how it was hindering relationships. Because I don't know if you ever had a BlackBerry, but when you had the BlackBerry, every time that little red light would would blink, you knew you had an email and I would start myself, I would start to feel myself being pulled to that device. So one day while we were living in Colorado, there was um, a talk being given by a woman named Sherry Turkle, who is a professor at MIT and had just written a book called Alone Together. And I said to my husband, I'm going to go to this talk and see if I can pick up any tips to minimize the psychological damage I'm probably doing to my children, given that I'm walking around with a BlackBerry and an iPhone. He's like, great, go, you need this. So I went, got some great tips. Uh, you know, she's a psychology and really focuses on these issues as it relates to families. Long story short, she had also just written an op-ed that went crazy viral in the New York Times called The Flight from Conversation and was looking at how do we begin to reclaim conversation in our lives. So it was funny. I bought her book. She signed it. And we just connected. And we went for coffee and had a conversation. And she was describing this new project. And this light bulb went off in my head that she wanted to look at how do you reclaim conversation in education? You know, are my kids going to go to college from their couch through a, through a massive a MOOC, a massive online course? Or what is the value of, the, of that connection on a campus? Obviously, there's a cost to go to college face-to-face, -face, but what are those trade-offs? Another section of her book was going to be in medicine. You go to the doctor and you want to look at him or her in the eye and the doctor's typing. And then she said business. This light bulb went off in my head and I said, you know what? This is my background for 20 years, helping companies improve their performance through people. And now technology is changing that in so many ways. 
And I said to her, look, if you're open to it, I would love to work with you on the research looking at this in the business world. And she said, great. So for a couple of years, I worked with her and we traveled across the country interviewing companies. She wrote her book. Um, you know, it was a New York Times bestseller, Reclaiming Conversation. And at that point, I went my own way and said, you know what? I'm not done here. There's so much I want to look at in the business context and take everything that I've done in my career and continue to look at this in a little bit of a different way. And where, where I focus is we need to find what I call the sweet spot between leveraging all that's amazing about technology because it's not going away and there are some phenomenal things about it, but we need to also put it in its place. And that is a way so that we can connect on a deeper level. So it was at that point when I said, you know, it was 2012, 13, when I said, you know what, I'm going off on my own and this is going to be my path to bring the intention of how we connect to people's lives, specifically at work. Hmm. Side note, after you went to Sherry Turkle's group, um, what happened to the, the BlackBerry and, and the iPhone? Did you make any changes to your relationship to those two things? I did. And it was the beginning of, I finally got rid of the BlackBerry. I was like, okay. And the reason why I had two phones, there was, it was a very positive reason. I was trying to have the BlackBerry be my work phone, the, the, the iPhone be my personal phone so that when I was with my kids, I could leave the BlackBerry at home. But as we know, there is no more line between the two and that we have to learn how to integrate this into our lives. So I think the, my intention was good that I was like, when I'm at the park with my young kids, I'm going to leave it at home. But I found myself more times than not carrying around two phones because I had a work thing that I had to deal with. And so finally I said, it's less about the two devices. I'm getting rid of the BlackBerry and I need to create intention, create protocols, have discipline and work within this one device. So that was a real shift after that talk. Okay. Okay. And, and look, I, I, people still, we all still struggle with it. I mean, it's something that I talk to people about every day. And, and even for myself, I have my protocols. Certain times I change them and we need to evolve as this technology evolves. Okay. Okay. So it's 2012, 2013. You're going off on your own and something big happens. You pick up the Harvard Business Review and you read a, a study that was done by Cornell in 2015 about firefighters and another light bulb goes off. What happens then? Right. So I was doing the research for a lot of my talks and my writing and at this point I knew I was going to write this book called Bring Your Human to Work. And as part of that research, I found the study by uh, Professor Kevin Niffen, as you said, out of Cornell. Kevin's father was a firefighter. And so when he was getting his advanced degree and needed to do research on the organizational front, it was logical that those were his people for him to study firefighters. And what Kevin found, and it resonated with me, but it, but it was, again, like you said, this light bulb when all of a sudden there was science to back up intuitively what I knew and felt as a connector, was that when the, fi the firefighters who were the most dedicated to that longstanding tradition of the firehouse meal, it actually correlated with higher performance and they saved more lives. Sitting around the table, building trust, being able to bring their whole selves to work. 
And so I started interviewing firefighters, talking to firefighters, just reading and getting my hands on everything I could. And, you know, as as many people know, when you think of firefighters and their stereotypical go-to meal, it's spaghetti and meatballs. So thus, the my company became the Spaghetti Project. And what I do with that is I go into corporations or community groups and talk about the science behind why it's important to connect and what happens when we don't, and then what are the bottom line implications for us as people and for us as businesses. You you say about the Spaghetti Project that it's it's more than just another plate of pasta. It's serving up goodness of connection. Now, what do firefighters talk about around the dinner table? Does it have to be deep conversations? Can it be, uh, you know, as Yuval Harari says, gossip, you know, is... Yeah, there's people. They'll talk about anything. I mean, you know, firefighters, what's interesting is they they plan the meals, they procure the meals, they cook the meals, they clean up from the meals. So a lot of the it is around, as you know, in your business, I mean, the, the, these just shooting the breeze conversations and getting to know people as people. So yes, there's a piece of it that as you get to know someone and people open up about things that they might not ordinarily open up to in, in a more formal setting, it enables people to to create these stronger bonds, which, as you can imagine, when you're out there fighting a fire and putting your life on the line for another person, it's that, you know, the, the stakes are high. One example that I can share, it was a conversation between two firefighters, and one of them said to the other, you know, deep down, you would never know this about me. I'm, as a kid, you know, I was afraid of heights. And when I heard this, I'm like, oh my gosh, a firefighter who is afraid of heights? It seems like an odd choice for a profession. So the, um, the firefighter who I spoke to was telling me this story and he said, wow, you know, tell, tell me more about that. He said, yeah, I, I, I was afraid of heights, but I got over it. And, you know, this is what I've always wanted to do. So they were just shooting the breeze. And this firefighter felt comfortable enough in this setting over lunch to share something intimate about himself. Fast forward three hours later the fire alarm goes off. And um, Bob, the firefighter who I was talking to, when they got out in the field, just knowing this information about this other firefighter shifted his perspective. You know, maybe you don't put him on the highest ladder or you double back and you check on him. Or So when you think about business performance, knowing that information changed the way he approached the job in that moment. Hmm. How, how does that correlate to the business world as we know it on a team? You know, I, I heard an, an interesting example very recently where a woman was telling me that she's really gotten to know a colleague of hers on a personal level, that they've just had conversations about their personal lives. And she found out that this colleague of hers was going through a divorce and it was over lunch. And, and this doesn't have to always be over a meal. I mean, it's, it's sort of a metaphor for just finding time to connect. This example also happened to be over a meal. And, and they just, she opened up to her. So fast forward, there were some very tricky things going on with their client. And it just enabled the employee who had to pick up a little bit of the slack to have some additional empathy for her colleague because 
you know, the colleague was vulnerable and shared what was going on. And it's not that the colleague that was going through the divorce was totally slacking off and not being present, but just that information changed the work environment. Because you could imagine if you didn't know this information, the person who was felt like she needed to put in even more time could have gotten angry, could have gotten resentful. And, and those kinds of things can have bad implications on your business and, and you know, your relationships with your clients. Hmm. Now, you mentioned vulnerability and empathy. Are those two words difficult for our existing corporate structure to hear? Do people push back against you using those two words in these contexts? It's changing. Why and is that? And I will say it's changing Part of it is because these new generations of workers, you know, millennials and Gen Z, want a very different kind of workplace. And actually, I'll change that the way I phrase that. We all wanted that as well, but there weren't enough of us, you know, Gen Xers, to move the needle. By 2025, millennials will make up 75% of the workforce. So companies have to listen or they may be out of business. So what do these generations want? They want a workplace that has a greater purpose, that stands for something more than the bottom line. They want to grow and learn. I mean, there's a whole list of things, and I I talk about many of them in the book. But part of that is that they want to work for managers who get to know them as people and empathy and being vulnerable. You need that to to, to connect with people on a deeper level. So some of it's being driven by that. And I'll never forget, you know, it was this amazing moment because, you know, being a woman in the workplace, I always felt like many of this was, you know, the female stuff, the touchy feely stuff. But all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, I read this article with um, one of the Warby Parker founders and um, they talked about hiring for empathy. And I was like, oh my God, we've made it. It's made it. This is mainstream. These new phenomenal companies, these leaders get it. And they are hiring for empathy. So I would not say it is prevalent across every company. Certain industries get it more than others. But I will say that I feel positive that that these kinds of things will become more prevalent in the workplace. My friend Dan Schwab, our friend Dan Schwabell, in his in his new book, um back to human he um shares a statistic that one in 3 employees uh would would take a position at another company for equal pay and position if the manager had more empathy yeah 100% people leave companies people leave managers they don't leave companies who talked to me about that i mean that's what the research shows if you have a manager that is not investing time to connect, that does not have that empathy, that is not focused on you and your learning and development, you are much more likely to leave and go to a company for, to your point, to, for equal pay, for a, for a you know, flat job. You, know, you don't even have to get promoted for a better manager. And I did compensation consulting and human resources consulting for a long time. You used to not leave a job unless you got about a 20% bump in pay. And it's just not the case anymore, which is why we need to make sure that we are curating connections so that our employees are developing relationships with each other. Because if you have relationships with the people that you work with, 
you're more much more likely to stay. So what should millennial oh what should people look for when um they're searching for their next human opportunity as quoted in your book? Well, the 10 chapters in my book outline many or most of the things that we all are looking for in a human-centric workplace, and in particular, millennials and Gen Z. Well, I'd love to dive into those 10 things. Um, The first is, so, so Erica's writing this book because there is a demand. And whether or not, if you're listening to this, whether or not you see that demand around you, depending on where you live or where you work, the demand is real and it is only growing. And this could not be more timely. And I thank you for that. The full title of the book that we're about to dive into is Bring Your Human to Work, 10 Surefire Ways to Design a Workplace That's Good for People, Great for Business, and Just Might Change the World. So the first question as we dive into the book is, why are employees and consumers demanding business change the world through so many things, including purposeful community? Exactly. So there's a lot of linkages to changing the world. If we break down what this new generation of workers want, the top three things are purpose and values, which is covered in this first chapter I call Be Real, that companies, you know, everybody has company values, but many times they're in a little plaque on your desk or on the wall. In a human workplace, they come off the walls and into the halls, that that we need to feel these values, live the values that need to be aligned with all the other processes in the organization in terms of who you hire, how you promote people, who you do business with, and then we need to empower our employees to live them. So that's one, that's one of the most important things that this generation wants, and that defines a human workplace. I would say the second one that I would focus on is what I call playing the long game. And it looks at this generation wants to work in a company that is diverse that has what I call intentional work practices. So what does that mean? They wanna have some flexibility in how, when, and where they work. They wanna work for a company that has parental leave. They wanna work, I mean, even Sheryl Sandberg recently wrote, um, after she wrote Option B, she wrote, talks about how, you know, her husband passed away very young, you know, 40 years old, and she realized at Facebook, they did not have a strong bereavement policy. So again, a human workplace. You need to think about your people and what people need to be sustainable. And the third one that I would add, and it relates to your, you know, helping the world is there's a chapter called Give Back. And millennials, one of the things that they want and Gen Z is they want to be able to give back to the world as part of their workplace. Now, not everyone works for the Red Cross or for a not-for-profit. You're in a bank or you're in a law firm or you're in a startup. It becomes harder to sort of connect those dots of how am I helping the world. So two things. One, it's up to managers to help them create those linkages, but more and more companies, and these are just not the IBMs or Facebook, the big companies, even small companies are creating programs and giving employees time off to volunteer bringing employees together as a bonding experience to go into inner cities or give back to organizations. So it's an important part of the human workplace. So an employee doesn't necessarily have to, you know, a lot of people listening to this might say, but I hate my job and I don't, I don't 
agree with what the company stands for. That's not what you're saying. The employee doesn't have to be, the employee doesn't have to connect to the philanthropic or social mission of the company. They just have to be empowered by their manager to awaken that within themselves. Is that right? Well, I would say um a combination of things. Uh, I mean, ideally, you believe in, in what the, the company yeah. does in the mission. So I think a great example to to highlight this, there's the a story where you you go into a hospital and talk to the janitor and you say, so what do you do for a living? And the janitor says, I save lives. So that janitor has, has connected what he is doing, sweeping that floor to saving lives is, you know... And so to me, that the manager can almost really in any company help to an employee have those conversations around what the person does for a living and how it connects to the strategy and the mission of the company. The philanthropic piece sometimes is related to what that company does, or sometimes it's completely unrelated. There's a a company in Philadelphia that's in the book called Vynamic. It's a really cool healthcare consulting firm. A lot of their philanthropic strategy is around helping their local communities in Philadelphia. It doesn't have anything to to do necessarily with healthcare or consulting, but that is their strategy. JetBlue, you know, there's 19,000 people in JetBlue. They decided that to, to have the biggest impact, that they would give two free plane tickets for their employees to donate to a charity of their choice after they volunteer for 50 hours. And I think last year, total, they had over 150,000 volunteer hours. So the, the chapter around giving back gives different strategies, but it doesn't always have to be related to the mission of the company. Gotcha. Although the statistics in the book say that an inspired employee is 225% more productive. Come on, folks. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, I want to go back to number two that was on your list, which is playing the long game and talking about human sustainability. Because we're, we're dealing with the big three. Stress, disengagement, and loneliness. In the book, you say that stress is causing the business... Uh, work workforce three hundred billion dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Gallup says that disengagement is causing four hundred fifty to five hundred fifty billion dollars a year, and others say that loneliness, uh, being lonely, is like smoking fifteen cigarettes a day. Right. The, the Surgeon General said it is the leading health risk loneliness. facing our country is isolation and loneliness. Whoa. Now, what do you talk about in chapter two more in depth on that? I would say it's it covers it actually spans a few different chapters. So there's a chapter called Be Well. And it's about looking at how are companies investing in in employees' overall well-being, physical health. More and more companies are um, providing benefits around mental health. I cover a topic uh, called Workplace Incivility. There's a woman named Christine Porath who, who wrote a book on it. When people are not civil in the workplace, and this happens a lot, that causes a tremendous amount of stress. And so I'm trying to look at employee well-being in a very broad way because, again, when we think about this new generation, they're looking to get more out of their workplaces than you go in, you come home. Also, because with technology today, you go home and you're still working. So because of that, 
they're also looking at how can I get some some other things out of out of my workplace? Another chapter that touches on your question is one that's called disconnect to reconnect. And because it's very difficult to disconnect at five o'clock, the companies that do this, that think about creating protocols and guidelines and rules of the road to help their employees understand when and how they can disconnect, they will be much more likely to retain their employees. And we know how expensive replacing any employee is, let alone a top employee. Is it expensive? Yeah, it's at least 150%, up to 400% of a person's salary. It's a fortune. And sometimes, you know, if you have a great employee, it's it's almost priceless. And so millennials want to work hard, but they want to know, they want some predictable time off. They want to have a life much more, I think, than than I did or I felt that I was able to sort of back in the day. So the companies that are, and, and this is not rocket science and it doesn't have to, you don't even have to spend a lot of money to do this. You can do something as easy as if I'm a manager and I have three kids, I say to my team, hey team, just so you guys know, between six and nine, if you need to reach me, call me, but I am not on my email because I'm home with my kids. But more importantly for your team, especially if they're millennials and Gen Z, then you say, and by the way, I, because of my life and priorities, I'm back on my email at 10 o'clock, but that's when I work. But just so you all know, you don't need to respond. This is, you know, the last thing you want is your great millennial employee out on a date or at a basketball game, getting an email from their boss and stressing about it all night. If you don't, if you're not intentional and if you don't have these conversations ahead of time, that is what will happen. So not rocket science, but very human and allows people to be sustainable. Hmm. Now, the... You you mentioned that you don't have to spend a lot of money on employee wellness, uh, but the ROI is proof that you can spend as much as you want because there's a six to one uh, ROI on what you spend. You'll get is that you'll get six times that much back in yeah, productivity. I, I just mean you don't have to spend money in you know, talking to people about being civil. I mean, certain things, yes, oh, gotcha. certain things have a cost associated with it, but I fully agree there is a return on that investment. You could look at your healthcare premiums. You can, there's studies that show that your absentee rates go down. So the data is pretty clear that investing in employee wellness is an investment well spent. And it's amazing, and I'd love your take on this. It's amazing, you know, we've we've done... Uh, you know, we've had 3,400 people sit at our dinner table in the last two years. And the amount, the hundreds of people that have come to me and have said, you know, this is the first time I've had a home-cooked meal with other people in weeks, months. Mm -hmm. Is that scary? I mean... Well, it goes back to that that Surgeon General study that shows that it's it's a huge issue. So what I try to talk to people about doing, when you think of the firefighters and we translate that to the workplace, it's not realistic that we're going to have every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with our team. Not realistic. Doesn't make sense for business. But when you do sit around your table, um, the firemen, or, or for any of us, when we've, when we've had a connection, 
our bodies have a physiological response. Our oxytocin goes up, our cortisol, our stress hormone goes down. So what I urge leaders to do is to just create these opportunities could be twice a month, but that's certainly better than people not having connection, you know, in three months, in six months, in a year, because I'll go back to it again, left to our own devices, we're not connecting. So it could be, um, I visited Slack a few months ago and I went into the office and um, it was 2.55, I'll never forget it. And at three o'clock, I was waiting for uh, the guy I was meeting with, this gong went off. And, you know, being from New York City, is, you know, when you hear an explosion, <laughs> you tend to get a little, you know, like, little jumpy. So I'm looking around, you know, what is going on? And the receptionist said, every day at three o'clock, there's a gong and everybody takes a break, goes to cappuccino hour and connects and gets a cappuccino. And so again, yeah, you pay for a cappuccino maker, but you get a huge return because what ends up happening, you, you take a break, you walk to the cappuccino maker, you run into somebody and you were about to send an email to that person, which probably would have then taken six emails back and forth. And you're like, hey, Chris, so glad I ran into you. I meant to ask you about such and such. And then you see another person and you're like, oh, you just reminded me. And, you know, creativity starts. And so not only do people feel good because they're getting that rush of that feel-good hormone, which is human nature to us as human beings. It's just part of who we are as a species. It also is good for business. And that's why the subtitle of the book is, you know, it covers that and addresses both of those things. And there's an entire uh, concept in your book about space matters. Start with the water cooler, create those, you know, actual physical spaces for connection. I want to reference my friend David Berkus's book, The Myths of Creativity. And he says that creativity loves constraints. Now, if you're creating a culture that breeds connection and creativity and openness, where do those constraints still lie? I like that. Creativity, what was the phrase you used again? Creativity loves constraints. Right. Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and finding that sweet spot. You know, creativity needs solitude and creativity needs connection. And so when we talk about space, what, what offices are focusing on right now is using space as a lever to inform creativity. So for example, I visited um, Lyft. It's an amazing company, very values driven, and their values show up in everything that they do, including space. So one of their four values is create fearlessly. But one of the complaints that I hear about in many offices today, and we many are moving to these open offices, is that it's hard. It's loud. People have headphones on. You can't focus. You're distracted. And so what they've done at Lyft, again, one of the values, create fearlessly. Where are you going to go to create fearlessly? And you're going to love this. So the one of the founders is um, kind of obsessed with Willy Wonka. <laughs> so they created this secret Willy Wonka room, sort of hidden with a big picture of Willy Wonka on the door. And when you go in through this Willy Wonka door, it's almost, it looks like a library. Everybody just whispers, and this is a place where you can have some of that solitude to create fearlessly. On the flip side, 
there's processes and protocols and the rest of their space is set up so that you do have those spontaneous interactions, which we know correlates with higher creativity. So to me, it goes back to being disciplined and making sure that in your life, in your profession, in your job, you're making sure to, to have both. Now, the last concept um, that I want to cover that's in your book is about saying thank you. Now, to start the podcast today, you gave credit and, credit and thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to. How do you think companies can bring that, that air of gratitude into their workplace? I think it's something that is really important. It, we go back to us as human beings and gratitude is important to people. And the studies show that when you're more inspired, you're more productive and more engaged. And so it really is a win-win. And in the book, I, I interview a couple of different companies that focus on it in very different ways. And it's also something that is free. You know, it's free to go up to someone and thank them for what they have done. And I can't tell you the number of people that I've interviewed that said what a difference that has made. And it's even made people not leave a company. So it's not rocket science. One company that I highlight is SoulCycle. And um, they have this very cool program where after you've been at SoulCycle for a year, you get a set of these pins. And each of the pins represents one of their values. And what they urge employees to do is if they, they see you embodying, living one of the values, you go up and you thank them and you give them a pin. And there's a guy that I talk about in the book who's become this urban legend and has amassed, you know, over a hundred pins. And people have them displayed on their desks. And sometimes when you're giving people a pin, you write a note to go along with the pin. And it's and it's really a way, back to what I said when I started, to take these values off the walls and into the halls, which is critical in a in a human workplace. I was another Interesting example, very different, is a company called Indigare, which is a travel company. And the COO there, Eliza Harris, had read a number of books about gratitude and how do we bring that to life. And she decided just to have some a very uh, informal, casual protocol in the morning. Whoever is around at 9 a.m., they go around, they grab the people in the office, and everybody goes around and says, what am I thankful for? and someone in their life that they're wishing good thoughts to. And she said, again, there's so much science around gratitude and what that does for you as a person, just to stop and, and think about what in your life you're thankful for and that mind shift that that gives you for the rest of your day. But the other part I thought was really interesting when I think about the importance of connecting people at work and um, the Gallup study and engagement and all of these things. So let's say we're in this session and, and I say in this morning meeting, you know, I'm wishing good thoughts on my dad. He just had back surgery and it was really on my mind today as part of this. So you've wished your dad good thoughts, but now my six colleagues who are in this discussion with me know that I have something going on in my life and it just creates community. It creates 
connection. And again, it helps me as a person, but to some of the stories I relayed earlier, it's also helpful in our business. Now, in closing, referencing your three Ps, what are some immediate things that people can do as a takeaway to this, from this conversation? Right. So when I talk to people about how to bring their human to work, I often break it down you know, they've seen the chapters and we could focus on wellness or focus on playing the long game, focus on giving back and all of that's important. But how do you take any of those concepts and bring it to life? And I break it down into three Ps. The first is we must prioritize relationships because that's that's the starting point. If we're not prioritizing relationships, we're never going to create a human workplace. And the question that I ask people, which really takes people back, and um, it's interesting when we have these discussions, I ask them one thing, does your calendar reflect your values? And it could be if you use Google Calendar, that could be if you use a handwritten calendar, but you know what? It's going to hold you accountable. How are you spending your time? To your point, if you haven't had a meal with a person in a couple of months, Not only are you not honoring relationships with others in your life, but you're certainly not honoring your relationship with yourself. The second P is positioning. How are you positioning technology? Meaning how do you leverage it, all the great stuff about it, but how do you also put it in its place? And thinking about technology along that continuum of instant message to text to email to picking up the phone and walking across the hall and matching the message to the medium and thinking strategically about your goal and the best way to achieve it, either via technology or without. And the final protocol, and this image I get in my mind when I talk about it is the sheriff from the Wild West, because we need to remember that this technology is new. We only last summer had the 10 year anniversary of the iPhone. This is so new. Companies are figuring out how to deal with it. We are figuring out how to deal with it on a daily basis. So when I think about protocols, leaders in companies need to create these rules of the road for their employees. You know what? When we have our Monday morning meetings, no technology. Or let's just pull it out at the last 10 minutes to schedule our next meeting. You know, everybody, at... Six o'clock, you don't have to check your email unless there's something mission critical that we've talked about ahead of time. So, you know, it's bringing these concepts but making them concrete for people. So those are the three Ps, and I think they're actionable and things that really anybody can integrate them into their lives personally and professionally. I like it. I like it. Well, Erica, thank you for your time. I certainly learned a lot of science and numbers and concepts to put behind everything that we do. And that's a tremendous gift you have to be able to communicate those so effectively. Folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please go to ericakeswin.com and check out everything she's got going on. Be ready for that book when it releases September of 2018. If you like this episode, Please subscribe, please share it with your friends, and feel free to email any thoughts, more questions, or suggestions on who we should next have on this podcast. I hope y'all are having a phenomenal day on Earth. Remember, folks, it's your world. Go explore, and we'll see you next episode. Mm